Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Well, good morning. It's welcome to Crosswinds. It's good to have you today. We're in our second week of our new series in the book of 1 Timothy. This series is entitled, is What is the Church? And we're going to go ahead and focus in our second week as we move forward in the series. Um, last week was really just purely introductory. We looked at the person of Timothy, learned a little bit about him, learned that he was a young guy. He was probably a skinny guy, uh, but he was also a guy who grew up to know and love Jesus Christ. And he traveled with Paul for about 14 years, so he really knew the gospel. We also learned about the church that Timothy was pastoring. It was the church of Ephesus. And if you think a church can be difficult to pastor, I mean, Ephesus would totally be it. The congregation consists of a bunch of ex-Satanists, ex-worshippers of a fertility goddess named Artemis, and then a bunch of uh, Jews who are normally resistant to the gospel. So he has his work cut out for him as a young man pastoring a huge, what is a mega church of thousands of people. The other thing we learned last week is about the problem that he faced. And the specific problem that Timothy faced is some of the elders of the church were drifting away from teaching on the gospel. They were drifting away from focusing on the exclusivity and the greatness of Jesus Christ. They were focusing on other things. And we were about ready just to begin the text last week, and that's where we left off. And today we're going to jump into the text and continue. And really the text, this first 11 verses, all orbit around this one question. Why must I keep my eyes on Jesus? Why must I keep my eyes on Jesus? And it's not just a question that they needed answered, but it's a question that we need answered too. Why must we here at Crosswinds Church not be distracted? We must focus on Jesus Christ and Him alone. We're going to dive right in, and we're going to give you four answers to that question in the text. Number one, the good news of Jesus was not something man created. It's not something man created. Begins in the first two verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that sounds like a very typical, normal greeting, and in many ways it is. He's, you know, grace, mercy, and peace. It's good to connect. And those are the, usually the ways that uh, typical letters in the ancient world would be opened and written. But there is something very interesting here. I want you to notice this. It's called Paul's stance. The position he puts himself in, he says, I am a command, I'm, I am an apostle, he says, by command of God and of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, I'm an apostle because I was in high school and I was looking through the job boards and I didn't know what to do with my life and I happened to see apostle of the church and I thought I'd try it. That's not the way he became an apostle. He became an apostle by the command of Christ. Now, let me explain to you what an apostle is. Because in, 
in the ancient world, in the time of Christ, there was typically the 12 apostles. And you notice they were chosen by Jesus on earth. They were with him for three years of his ministry. Then they were commissioned by Jesus to go into all the world and to share the gospel. And in John 14, we find that the apostles, were, Jesus told the apostles that the Holy Spirit would be with them, bringing to mind everything that he had taught them. So the apostles in the ancient church were those chosen, trained, and commissioned, and sent out by Jesus to carry the gospel message to the world. And here's where it's a little funky. Paul was not part of that group. So why does he call himself an apostle? Well, he's an apostle, but he's an apostle in a different way. Remember how Paul started out. He was like a ISIS against Jesus. He was the guy who was hunting down the Christians, killing the Christians, overseeing the death of Christians. He was there at the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, cheering it on. In fact, you get to Acts chapter 9. He was on the Damascus Road going to another town. And he was preparing to go capture, persecute, and destroy more Christians. And what happened to him? Jesus Christ, in his resurrected form, appeared to him on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9. Literally knocked him on his butt. And Jesus said to me, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And all of a sudden, Paul realized, wait a minute, I'm on the wrong side of the equation here. I've been trying to get rid of the Christians, and Jesus Christ really is alive. And all of a sudden, he goes from somebody who doesn't love Jesus, who does love Jesus. He becomes a Christian because Jesus hunted him down. Jesus chose him, and Jesus changed him. And here's where it gets interesting. You go to Galatians chapter 1, verse 17. It says, after this time when he was brought to Christ on the road to Damascus, what he did is he went to Arabia for three years where he was trained by Jesus. Now, are you seeing the same apostolic pattern? The original apostles were chosen by Christ, then trained by Christ for three years. Paul was chosen by Christ, and then he went to Arabia where he was trained by Christ for three years. In fact, when it comes to this whole gospel message, I love what Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 12 that I put in your notes. He says, For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This whole message that I'm talking to you about, he says, that the way we know God is by repenting of our sin and by simply placing our faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us and we are born again. It is not my idea, Paul says. This is exactly what God directly taught me. This is a revelation directly from God. I was called by God. I was instructed by God. So it's not a matter of my opinion versus someone else's opinion. My opinion is simply what God told me is the simple truth. 
Now, later on, we know that in the book of Acts, Paul does go to Jerusalem, and he finds out that the gospel message that Jesus Christ just told him to teach is the same gospel message that the other apostles are teaching. So it's confirmed by the other apostles, not originated by the other apostles. This is very important to understand Paul's stance as he begins this letter. I am an apostle of Jesus Christ, not because I wanted to be, but by command of God. And the message I am sharing with you is not something I made up, but it is a direct revelation instruction that was given to me by God himself. This is not an issue of discussion. I mean, that's a pretty tough way to begin a letter, but it's the truth. And then he says this, and to Timothy, my true child. Now, some scholars have an interesting way in this. They say this could probably be a play on words. Remember how we learned last week about Timothy that his mother was a Jewish Christian, but his father was a Greek who didn't want anything to do with Jesus? Orthodox Jews would have considered Timothy an illegitimate child. And what does Paul say about him? He is my true child. And what he's saying is, if you want to know what I would say in any of these situations that you're wondering out what is the truth of the gospel, just talk to Timothy. When you see Timothy, you see me. He is my true child. Remember, he spent 14 years with Paul, we learned last week. You know, traveling with Paul, uh, in prison with Paul in Rome. So you have a really good picture of what Paul would say by simply talking to Timothy. So right here at the beginning of the letter to Timothy, which goes to the, actually not just to Timothy personally, but it goes to the entire church of Ephesus, you have Paul telling them what his authority is, the gospel by and an apostle by the command of God, and giving authority to Timothy. Timothy is my true child and will say exactly what I would say. So, number one, why must I keep my eyes on Jesus? Because the good news of Jesus is not something that man made up. It's not a matter of opinion. Number two, taking my eyes off Jesus separates me from life with God. It separates me from life with God. Let's look at verses three and four. As I urged you, Paul writes, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which are promoting speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Apparently what has happened is some of the elders in the church are getting bored with the fact that every week they keep talking about Jesus, talking about simply placing your faith in Jesus and trusting in Jesus to change your life. So they're like, this isn't sophisticated enough. This isn't interesting enough. Let's move on to something else besides Jesus. Now personally, I don't think they're totally rejecting Jesus at this point. Otherwise, they wouldn't even be in the church. But I think it's actually more a matter of emphasis. What they're doing is they're moving Jesus from the front row of their teaching and putting him in the back row of their teaching. 
you know, Jesus is good, but let's move on to something more interesting, more exciting, more sophisticated. What they're doing is viewing Jesus more like an accessory to the faith rather than the main core of the faith. They're like, Jesus is like power door locks, you know, an accessory, but he's not. He is the main event. Understand the greatness of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. You've been around here for a while. You've heard me say this. We all know from Scripture that it was God the Father's will to make creation, but it was Jesus Christ who fashioned all of creation, not this planet, just that alone, but the entire universe and all angelic and physical beings. Everything you see was fashioned by Jesus Christ. And it was God the Father's desire for salvation of us from our sin. And what happened? Jesus Christ, the one who fashioned everything, fused himself in a human body permanently, irrevocably in the womb of Mary. He humbled himself and restricted the exercise of his divine attributes to live a human life in our place, to die on the cross in our place for our sin, paying for all of our sin, and then rising from the dead, conquering death, and now he's exalted to the right hand of God the Father. And that we are the most blessed beings in the entire universe. We are literally adopted as brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ by simply placing our faith in Jesus Christ and asking him to be our Lord and Savior. Now, how could you make that an accessory? How could you make minimize that? This is the best news in the entire creation. Now, in the book of Galatians, Paul is running into a similar problem. The Galatians also were taking their eyes off the greatness and the exclusivity of Jesus. And they were, instead of putting on a variety of different things, what they were starting to do is go back to observing the Old Testament laws in place of Jesus. And look what Paul says to them, because the words he uses to the Galatians is very applicable here to the Ephesians. He says in Galatians 3, 2, Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? You remember when you became a Christian and God changed your life and you were born again and you became a new person? What did it? Was it because you got really good at obeying the Ten Commandments? Or is it because you heard about Jesus Christ and you responded with faith in Jesus Christ and you were born again? It was Jesus that changed your life. And then he comes down to the next one, Galatians 3, verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? What he's talking about is he's moving from the beginning of the Christian life to sustaining the Christian life. All the good things, he says, that are happening in your life and the church are they happening because you, got, you moved on from Christ and you got really good at obeying the Ten Commandments now? Or are they happening because you're still leaning into God with faith in Jesus Christ? It's all about faith in Christ. That begins our relationship with God. It sustains our relationship with God. Don't take your eyes off Jesus. 
Do you see the message? In fact, Paul comes along to the Galatians and he uses some of his strongest language in the entire Bible on this very issue. He says in Galatians, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. You see this issue of distorting and taking your eyes off Jesus? But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now, I've told you that on occasions the English Bible turns down some of the actual uh, like brightness of the Greek text. When it says accursed, the NIV uses the term anathema. Let me, this is essentially what it means. Let him go to hell. It's essentially what Paul is saying. Let them be devoted to destruction forever if they would do anything to take your eyes off of simple faith in Jesus Christ and put it on something else. Because what it does is it destroys your relationship with God. Because it is Jesus Christ alone and our faith in Him that saves us and sustains us and makes us the church. Now, I told you what was happening in Ephesus is people had not outright rejected Jesus. But they had begun to mix Jesus with other things and take their eyes off Jesus onto other things. Let me show you some of the things that they were uh, being distracted by away from Christ. Number one, what takes my eyes off Jesus? The first thing we find, it's spiritual speculation takes my eyes off Jesus. Spiritual speculation. Paul says here, people are devoting themselves to myths and to endless genealogies. And he doesn't develop that much. What are these myths and endless genealogies? But that's what they're giving their attention to instead of Christ. We do a little bit of research in the ancient city of Ephesus, and we can uncover some of these myths and genealogies they were interested in. If you were here last week when I showed you around the city of Ephesus, you saw that the ancient city of Ephesus had a huge library. And they were a city that was very highly cultured. They were into learning. They were into literature. And in that world, there was a number of books that were being published. Remember, we also learned that Ephesus was the center of a book publishing industry. That's what they were famous for in the city. Um, but some of the books they were publishing were ones like this. The Book of Jubilees, for instance. The Book of Jubilees was originally written in 125 A.D. Let me tell you what it is. It is a fictional retelling of the book of Genesis. What they did is they took the book of Genesis and they divided it up into what they would call jubilee years, which is every 49 years. And what they did is they added things to the book of Genesis. They subtracted things from the book of Genesis and they changed things from the book of Genesis. And this is what they did. And for instance, they say things in the book of Jubilees about how the animals used to speak. Sort of like the language of the land of Narnia. You guys remember that? Narnia, where the animals spoke? They describe the, the earth originally being like that, but then God taking away the language from the animals. And all kinds of stuff. And here's what happens. In this 
young church, people read the book of Genesis. They have questions. They don't have all the answers. So then they start reading books like the book of Jubilees, which starts to add answers. But where are the answers coming from? Myths. Speculations. And people are becoming fascinated by stuff. Did you just read that book? It really helps me understand what's going on in Genesis. But it's not true. And here is what is most devastating of all. This book was taking their eyes off Jesus. They're being captured by myths and speculations. Another one that was very popular at that time, a book called Biblical Antiquities. It was written a little bit before 70 A.D. It is a fictional retelling from Adam all the way through King Saul. And once again, what do they do with the Bible? They add sections to it that aren't there. They subtract sections that are there, and they change things in there. It's sort of like if you start reading the biblical antiquities, and then you read your Bible, you sort of get confused. You know, which happened and which one? And all of a sudden, the scriptures are starting to get fuzzy and blurry in people's minds. But they're interested in these things. And it's all a bunch of guesswork and fantasy. And at the end of the day, here's the worst part of it all. By their devotion to this stuff, they've taken their eyes off of Jesus Christ. And it's drifting them away from God. Now, I know that this may sound sort of far-fetched. Maybe you think it's something that just happens in the ancient world where people became caught up in current-day religious literature instead of Jesus. But it's not too far from us. If you look at our culture... You'll find today that Christians are often caught up in current-day religious speculation. And it takes our eyes off of simple faith and trust in Jesus. Let me give you some examples that we would deal with every day. Maybe you've heard of the Bible Code by Michael Drozen. It's a very popular book. It's in its third edition right now. You can look it up on Wikipedia. And he believes that if you were to take the whole Hebrew Old Testament and line it up in like a big long line, stretch it out, and you were to go and look at every third letter or then every fourth letter and you keep working your way through it, you will find secret codes that were put in there, he believes, by aliens. Now, he's a little far-fetched, but you know, a lot of people buy this book. He says you can find Clinton in there. You can find Watergate and you can find, he also talks about, um, what's the big call it? The 1929 uh, stock market crash. I don't know how he found that one in there. But he does a lot of this kind of speculation. And he tries to get into Christians' minds that if you just look at the Old Testament through equidistant letter spacing, you can find there's a hidden code. And here's the worst problem. When Christians get involved in this stuff, where do their eyes go? Off of that cross and on to speculation and myth. See the problem? Another example. Uh, the Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. It's a, it's a fictional book, and it is a well-written fictional book. But quite honestly, for many Christians, it leads them to confusion. The book talks about Gospels like the Shepherd of Hermas or the Gospel of Thomas, and they say these books were supposedly covertly kept out of the, our Bible, and they should be there. And if you just study the ancient history of the world, Nobody accepted them as part of the Bible. But what he does is he sows confusion, he sows misunderstanding, and people are taking their eyes off of Jesus because of that. 
I'll give you another one. This one is probably more recent. Uh, the Heaven is for Real book by Todd Burpo. Maybe some of you guys know that one, or maybe some of you guys have read that one. As of 2014, this book, Heaven is for Real, had sold 10 million copies. In 2016, when the movie came out, uh, at that point they had made $101 million off of the movie. And this book in the movie is supposedly about a, a Christian pastor whose son dies and has an experience of going to heaven, but yet he comes back and he tells people all about what heaven is like. And people are turning to this book for all kinds of information on what heaven is about. But here's the problem. What do you do when you have this little kid who's supposedly telling about his near-death experience in heaven, he's telling you things that the Bible doesn't say are true. He says in the book, for instance, that when everyone dies, they go to heaven and they all get wings. Does the Bible say we get wings? No. This book, quite honestly, is speculation. It's myth. And even in the movie, if you ever see the movie, when the, the pastor sort of starts talking to his congregation about it, I think it's very interesting what he does. He has his notes and he has his Bible open. And at one point, he takes the notes of what his son has supposedly seen, he covers his Bible and begins preaching from that instead of the Bible. Isn't that revealing? That he moves from the revealed Word of God that was given to people like Paul at command of God to myths and speculations. And in so doing, takes his eyes off Jesus. Let me give you another one that's pretty popular. It's called The Four Blood Moons by John Hagee. And in this book, John Hagee believes that there is catastrophes that God sort of sends on us based on blood moons. If I understand this correctly, after reading Wikipedia about this, Blood moons are a series of four lunar eclipses that happened during the Jewish holidays. And he talked about how there was a blood moon that was going to take place between, taking place between April uh, 2014 through September 2015. There would be a great catastrophe that would take place during that time. And we should be prepared for it. And everybody got into this and looking for it. But here's the problem. Did anything happen? No. So what is this? Myths? and speculations that people are talking about in the church. You have to read this book. But in the, the problem is it's taking our eyes off Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who began our faith. Jesus Christ is the one who sustains our faith. And it's our simple faith in Him that makes the difference. One other example. Extra-biblical teachings can drift us away from Jesus Christ. I would give you an example by that would be maybe the Catholic Church. Because, you know, the Catholic Church uh, has a bunch of extra-biblical teachings, such as purgatory. Purgatory is the belief that after you die, you go to purgatory where you have to suffer for some of your sins. Because they don't believe that it's possible that Jesus Christ actually paid in full for all of your sins, so you have to suffer for some of your sins. But is purgatory found in Scripture? No, it's not there at all. And what it does is it takes your eyes off the greatness of what Jesus Christ has done for you by paying in full for all of our sins. Another example 
would be maybe the adoration of the saints and the veneration of Mary. Is that found anywhere in Scripture? No. It's myth. It's speculation that takes your eyes off of Jesus Christ and onto the saints and Mary in place of Him. And it makes Jesus smaller. So, the first thing we see that was taking place in Ephesus, and that can often take place in our lives as well, is moving off of focusing on Jesus to spiritual speculations and myths that are popular in our culture. The second thing we see that was happening here in the church of Ephesus is a misuse of the Old Testament can take our eyes off Jesus. He says in verses 6 through 7, Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussions. They are desiring to be teachers of the law without really understanding what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. He says, you have a bunch of guys that think they really understand the Old Testament and how to use it, but they don't. It reminds me of a 14-year-old when it comes to driver's ed. You know, Do you know how to drive a car? Oh, yeah. I know what a gas pedal is, a brake pedal, and a steering wheel. I know how to turn the key. I know how to drive a car. <laughs> no, you don't know how to drive a car. It's one thing to know a little bit about driving a car. It's actually another thing to have experience driving a car. And that's what these guys are like. They, they think they understand how to use the Old Testament, but they don't. Let me give you uh, the continuation here as he dives into this. Now, he says, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God of which I have been entrusted. Now, if you look through this, what he does is he sort of gives a recounting of the Ten Commandments in this list. Extreme examples of violation of this. And what he's saying is this. The purpose of the Old Testament law is one, to reveal sin, and number two, to restrain sin. The purpose of the law is to reveal sin and to restrain sin. And what they were doing is using the Old Testament law as a way of trying to make themselves feel better. They're going through the Ten Commandments like, hey, you know, I got 90% on that one. I haven't I've only violated one this week. I'm sort of a good guy. Here is the proper way to use the law, and I put this in your, your, your notes here. The Old Testament is not a ladder of which we climb to God. It is a mirror that shows us how far short we fall from God. The Old Testament is not a ladder of which we climb to God. It's a mirror that shows us how far short we fall from God. Let me illustrate it this way. How many of us here this morning think we're pretty decent, normal folks? Decent folks here? Decent fo okay, I'm going to find out if you're decent folks or not. Okay. Um, let's go to the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13 says, Thou shalt not murder. Anybody violated that one recently? 
Okay, you haven't murdered anybody, you feel pretty good, right? And then you start digging around the rest of the scriptures and we find out that this idea of murder is not just a physical act, but it has to do with what's going on in your heart. For instance, 1 John chapter 3, verse 15 says this, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Anyone ever here hated somebody? Oops. Give you another example. Let's move from Exodus 20, 13 to Exodus 20, 14, which says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, I'm not going to ask anyone to raise their hands, but you're like, how many of you have committed adultery, I would say? And most of us hopefully would not put our hands up. And so we're thinking, I'm pretty good. I haven't committed adultery until you put your finger around the text. And what did we find out? It says in Matthew 5.28, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his, with her in his heart. Now, how many of us have not looked at another a person of the opposite sex lustfully? Well, you, you told me earlier that you were a bunch of good people. But it sounds like in the room we have a bunch of murderers and adulterers. And the law revealed that to us. You see how the law is a mirror that shows us where we're at, not a ladder of which we climb to God? In fact, the more we look at the law, the more we realize how messed up we are, and it drives us to the grace of God through Jesus Christ that we can receive only by faith alone because we cannot contribute anything to our salvation besides the sin from which we need to be forgiven. And Jesus has done it all. You see why we have to keep our eyes fixed on Him? In fact, Romans 3.20 says this, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in His sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The last point of why we must fix our eyes on Jesus Christ and not be distracted away is this. Setting my eyes on Jesus is the only way to become a loving person. It's the only way. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, the aim of our charge, which is the gospel, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The aim of what happens when you come to God through Jesus Christ is that you would become a more loving person. First of all, because you have a good conscience, because our sins are forgiven. We are no longer hanging around with guilt. We have a pure heart because God says He changes the desires of our heart to be for the things of Christ when we come to Him. And the Holy Spirit changes our life. Look what it says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love because He first loved us. Where does our love come from? It comes from the fact that as Jesus Christ loves us, and as we walk with Him, and we focus on Him, and we know Him, we become more loving people. Sometimes people have said to me, they've said, you know, my marriage is struggling. I need a good book on marriage so we can learn to love each other more. And let me tell you what the best book on marriage is. It's the one I'm holding in my hand. When we walk with Christ, with simple faith in Christ, refusing to be distracted from Christ, 
putting our finger in the text, learning about the greatness of God's love for us, and our finger in the law, learning about how incredibly sinful we are, yet how incredibly gracious God is. We understand God's love for us more, and His love begins to flow through us, even in our marriage. Maybe I should say, especially in our marriages. The best thing you can do for your relationship is to focus on Jesus and refuse to be distracted from Him. Let me just summarize why we cannot let our eyes be distracted from Jesus. Number one, remember that the gospel is not the opinion of man. It is the revelation of God. That was Paul's stance. There's only one way to be saved, and that's through simple faith in Jesus Christ. Number two, don't get distracted from Jesus because He is the only way to God. In the ancient world, they were distracted by myths and speculations, just like we can be distracted by myths and speculations. Sometimes it's easy to get distracted by other things in the Scriptures, like trying to focus on the Old Testament law, but to focus upon Jesus Christ and Him alone. And number three, we must not get distracted from Jesus because focusing on Jesus is what makes us loving people. Focusing on anything else will make us selfish people. My friends, do not take our eyes off Jesus. As a church, may we never be distracted from Jesus. He is not an accessory. He is our all. Our lives with God began by simple faith and trust in Him. Our lives with God are sustained by simple faith and trust in Him. May we not be distracted by everything else from Him. In a moment, we're going to uh, celebrate communion. And as we take the Lord's Supper, I would like you to focus with your whole heart on worshiping Jesus Christ, thanking Him for what He has done by saving you in full. And it's simply by faith and trust in Him that we get to know Him. Here at Crosswinds, by the way, we practice open communion. So it doesn't matter if you're a member of the church or not, but if you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we invite you to join with us in celebrating. I also ask that you would hold the bread and hold the cup while we pass it out so that we can take the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to confess that we have often been distracted from your son. Whether it's the busyness of life, whether it's current cultural books or cultural trends, we've often taken our eyes off of you, Jesus. Forgive us for that. This morning we want to refocus on you because it is only for what you have done for us and the love that you extended to us that we have any kind of relationship with you at all. And we don't just have a relationship. We have the fact that we're adopted to be the most blessed beings in the universe as your sons and daughters. So Jesus, as we take this communion, we just want to worship you from the bottom of our heart for all that you have done for us. We ask this in Christ's name. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.